I was not a particularly handsome woman, nor particularly young, but I was happy. I owned a bookshop, a narrow warren wedged between a homely but well-patronized Greek restaurant on whose soup I sometimes subsisted for days, and a clothes shop that aspired valiantly to the Okero while struggling with the rent. Our apartment, just above the bookstore on the second floor, meant that I was never very far away, but I didn't mind. I had to mind the shop. Inside the shop, the groaning shelves wound backward along the walls and round the corner, down the steep stairs and into the cellar, curling into labyrinthian passages and cul-de-sac, each with its worn old chair whose cushions were liberally frosted with cat hair. This was courtesy of Munchkin and Agatha, who had moved in without ceremony shortly after I opened the shop, sent by whatever minor deity it is whose charge it is to see it that every respectable used bookshop is adequately populated by cats. I never really planned to open a bookshop. I had not, in fact, ever planned to open a shop of any kind. When I found myself in a rush to do so, I had not had time to plan ahead for cats, though I knew that the shop would be incomplete without them. I had been pleased when they arrived. They were affectionate cats in their way, once in a while deigning to spend a bit of time in my lap while I sat behind the high counter of a slow afternoon, paging through one of the innumerable tomes of my stock. Perhaps most importantly, the cats got along with the bookshop, and it got along with them. I was glad of that. I hadn't been sure they would. I know now that I needn't have worried, but in the beginning I hadn't been at all sure. I had never kept a bookshop before, after all. Nor cats. Nor had I ever intended to. In fact, one could, without the slightest inaccuracy, say that I had come into my occupation entirely by accident. My husband believed the books were useless. He called them romantic claptrap and stupid stories about people who weren't even real. Bertie said all this, gesturing at the shelves while he worked on his fifth bottle of beer. He never understood the joy of reading. I picked up a knick-knack, gave it a swipe, and with my dust cloth and bit the tip of my tongue as I nervously cleaned the already spotless bookcases. I hoped my motions might distract Bertie from realizing just how many layers of books were really there, smaller ones stuffed behind taller volumes whose spines stood like fence pickets, perfectly even with the outermost rim of the shelves. But no matter how I tried to draw his eye, Bertie eventually noticed some new acquisition among the hundreds of volumes that filled the shelves that lined every available wall in our second-story apartment. Bertie slammed down his beer bottle and picked up the book, opening at random with a disgusted look. He thumbed through the slender volume for a moment, his features sliding hideously from rant toward rage. He told me I was pathetic. He told me he didn't know why he married me, and that he should have married my sister. He said she was five times the woman I ever would be and that he was ten times the man I deserve. I tried again to grab the book from his hand, to yank down his arm, 
but Bertie was too tall, too drunk, too angry. Cackling, red-faced, he opened the book above his head and held it in two hands, twisting the binding, threatening to rip it in two. I told him, I said, don't you dare, Bertie Charles, don't you dare destroy that book. I bought it with my own money and you know it. Give it to me this instant. I did my best to be stern, but my throat soured and I felt like I might start choking. With a cruel laugh and a crueler sneer, Bertie flung the book across the room as hard as he could, hitting the end table and knocking something off that shattered when it hit the floor. I flinched, but I wasn't really surprised. I stood with clenched fists while he growled something about finding a real woman instead of a dried-up librarian. He kicked the door shut behind him as he stomped out the door and down the stairs. When his steps ceased to echo, I forced my fingers to uncurl. Although I had never used it to hold anything but a few wrapped peppermints and some limp-faded memories of my honeymoon at Niagara Falls, I gazed sad and sorry at the broken ashtray. I brushed the cover of the book Bertie had abused, flicking slivers of cheap porcelain from its cover. I'm terribly sorry, I said slightly self-consciously to the scarred copy of Little Women. I really do try to keep him from doing that, but he always does that sort of thing when he's in his cups. Begging him not to just seems to make it worse. It's a shame you can't defend yourselves any better than I seem to be able to. A plopping noise from behind me made me jump. I whipped around the hardbound book club copy of Flowers in the Attic I'd been rereading now lay on the floor. Before I could get to my feet, a third book plummeted off the end of a high shelf as if pushed by some errant breeze. It fell like a shot bird. What on earth? I grabbed for a dog-eared copy of Through the Looking Glass as it teetered on the edge of its shelf, catching it before it fell. With a yelp, I dropped it. It had wriggled, like a salmon in a bear's mouth, like a worm on the sidewalk, like the dancers in the bar down the block where Bertie was by now drinking his paycheck. It wriggled right out of my hands and onto the floor where it evidently wanted to be. Like dead leaves, other books plopped down from the shelves, landing on the threadbare carpet with sinister thuds. Riffling their own pages, they traveled slowly, Surreally, as if pulled on invisible strings, their covers crunched and scraped softly over the bits of broken ceramic. What are you doing? I demanded. You've never done this before. You're going to scratch your covers. The books did not answer. Feeling faint, I sat down in my favorite reading chair and I tried to think. I closed my eyes, but when I opened them, the books still rustled, still moved. Maybe I was hallucinating. Had Bertie hit me? Or had I perhaps fallen and hit my head? I gently felt my scalp, but no painful lumps presented themselves. I decided to go into the kitchen and get a glass of water. And uh, when I come back, I'll see what's really going on in here. Walking back into the room, I nearly dropped my glass. The Shining and Murder on the Orient Express were dispatching the last of the ashtray, sweeping their pages rhythmically. Anne of Green Gables appeared to be tugging a wilted old copy of the Daily News from the kindling basket next to the fireplace and indeed seemed to have eaten half of it already. Through the looking glass sat halfway atop the torn off emptied cover of that week's TV guide. Apparently the book hadn't cared for the glossy cover, only the juicy pulp inside. Bertie had left it lying on the floor. 
And now I giggled nervously at tried, as I tried to imagine myself explaining to him that now it was less of a guide and more of a digest. I stared hard at the novel, as if daring it to show its teeth. It didn't, but I could have sworn I heard a soft belch. I picked up the book from the floor, feeling the need to hang on to something solid. I wrapped my arms around it, holding it to my chest. The book was still, but oddly warm. I'm not sure what's going on around here, but if you need to eat, there's an old newspaper in the kindling box, and I'm sure I've got a box of old magazines in the broom closet. I'll put them behind the chair. Just make sure you stack yourselves neatly when you're done eating, or Mr. Charles will trip over you, and heaven only knows what he'd do to you then. So make sure you're out of the way by the time he comes home, and I'll shelve you in the morning. Sunday mornings were quiet in our household. Bertie needed it that way, given that even the noise of feathers shifting in his pillows sometimes made him groan in agony. I tightened the belt of my wrapper and shelved silently, amazed at the number of volumes that had apparently attended the feast in my living room while I slept. The box of magazines was nearly empty, and all that remained were copies of The New Yorker. Hastily, I removed The New Yorkers from the box of magazines and placed them respectfully on the table where the radio used to be. Used to be. Oh no. Bertie will be furious. I picked up the pile of periodicals carefully, lifting straight up so as not to disturb what lay below. The faint outline of the radio was preserved in a fine layer of brown dust, all that was left of its hard plastic shell. The radio, or the last morsel of it that remained at any rate, was still plugged into the socket in the baseboard, a scant inch or two of well-gnawed cord still protruding from the glossy black fake-like plug. I pulled back. Eyes searching the room, I looked at the closed kitchen door. Perhaps Bertie had taken the radio in there to listen to the end of the ball game while he had a midnight snack, then left it in there. I stopped the thought firmly. I forced myself to look at the table where the radio had been. It was no use. What had happened was obvious. The fact that it was impossible was beside the point. Hurriedly, I extracted the remains of the electrical cord from the outlet and shoved it into the pocket of my dress. I'd have to tell my husband that the radio was broken and that I'd taken it in to get fixed. Perhaps I could find the same model to replace it with, and if I couldn't, well, I'd have to think of something. Wondering what else my rapacious library had decided to eat during the night, I canvassed the apartment room by room. Every room had its bookshelves, and every room, as it turned out, had something missing. I made a mental note to tell Bertie that he'd already thrown out his daily racing form if he asked, and I made another to buy more toilet paper. I had been sure there had been five spare rolls the previous day, but now there were only two. The pen next to the flip-top phone directory had vanished, but I was always losing that anyhow. Bertie still fast asleep, snoring and drooling into his pillow while I dressed myself, combed my hair, and put on a touch of lipstick scribbling a note to my husband to let him know that there was orange juice and fresh eggs in the fridge and donuts in the bread box and that I'd be back after church. I cast a watchful glance at the cookbooks that stood innocently on the shelf above the stove, then at the variegated travelogues and biographies that filled the thin tall bookshelf between the kitchen windows. Nothing stirred on the shelves. I chose to interpret the silence as agreement. Picking up my handbag and taking my hat from the top of the bookshelf by the door, 
I looked around the living room once more, my eyes pausing momentarily on the spines of the books I had reshelved that morning. Then I was out the door, closing it as silently as possible behind me. Tomorrow, I thought with a private grin, I'd go around the newsstands and see if I could get them to part with their outdated stock. The books had seemed to enjoy TV Guide and Time Magazine and the Ladies' Home Journal. If I said I was collecting them for the church, for the Sunday school program maybe, they might even give them for free. Yes, that ought to work. For the Sunday school program maybe, they gave them for free. In the meantime, I hoped that the books had gotten enough to eat. I didn't like the thought of coming home from church to a decimated Davenport or a sudden and inexplicable absence of pots and pans. Explaining the absence of the radio to Bertie was one thing, but the couch would be quite another. I mounted the stairs to the apartment, with a spring in my step and a soft smile on my lips. Church always did me good, in a sort of non-specific but uplifting way, and the walk home in the warm spring air had afforded me the chance not only to browse the windows of my favorite department store, but also to stick my nose into the purple effluents of several lilac hedges along the way. The living room, I was happy to note when I entered it, looked quite normal. The couch in its accustomed place, both my chair and birdies where I'd left them. The television sat thankfully unmolested. Where were the books? Tire shelves were missing, and not only the books whose spines faced outward, the books I'd shelved behind them were gone too, as if someone had come in and carted them off by the box full, indiscriminately mixing the big hardbacks that fronted the shelves with the smaller volumes I'd hidden behind them. My heart lurched into hummingbird overdrive, my stomach clenching as if it were trying to wring itself dry. It was Bertie's idea of revenge. It had to be, or a very bad joke, maybe. I knew how much he hated it that I knew more than he did, that I had this whole private life that didn't have anything to do with him at all. But to take the books and do what with them? Sell them? Burn them? Dump them in the river? He wouldn't dare, would he? I flung open the kitchen door to see if at least he'd left a note. Perhaps he had finally left me for some waitress and was selling my books to pay for a ring and tickets to Vegas. I wouldn't put it past him. But there was no note. There was no sign he'd even been in the kitchen. The bottle of orange juice stood untouched in the refrigerator, an even dozen eggs still cuddled in their carton. It didn't seem like he'd been in there, but on the other hand, some of the cookbooks had clearly gone out. Only the joy of cooking remained standing sentinel above the stove. What kind of game could he be playing? I burst back through the living room and nearly tore the bedroom door from its hinges, so sure that I would find Bertie sitting in there with a cigarette in his hand and that insufferable smirk on his face ready to laugh at me just like always, except that he wasn't. The only thing stirring in the bedroom were books, dozens and dozens of books sliding snail-like over one another in a gently rustling heap on Bert's side of the bed. Dumbstruck, I lifted a limp paperback edition of Brave New World that had fallen sated to the floor and set it down on the bureau. There was hardly any blood, only a few tiny splotches on the pillowcase as if Bert had cut himself shaving. I went to the kitchen to let the books finish their meal. Several cups of coffee and a leisurely reading of the Sunday Times later, all that remained of Bertie were his dry undershorts and his wristwatch, lying limp amidst a circle of bloated puffy-looking books. They'd even eaten the label out of his fruit of the looms. 
The police were helpless. There was no body to be found. It was as if the earth had swallowed Bertie Charles whole. There were plenty of suspects, though. He had a tendency to pick fights down at the bar. It hadn't been above trying to act on his taste for other guys' girl, either. Investigations kept the nice young detectives busy, and that was something with which I had no quarrel. Newly alone as I was, I had other things on my mind. As it turned out, the local news agents were quite relieved to have someone willing to take their backdated stock, and aside from the chore of lugging it all the way up the stairs, it all worked out rather neatly. My only problem was that I was running out of space for the babies. Nearly every morning now, when I get out of bed, I would find another clutch of offspring huddled in a pile next to their mother. Or was it parent? I couldn't tell which was which, and neither title nor the author's sex were any help. Lady Chatterley's lover had spawned a half-dozen chapbooks of blank verse the day prior, and the King James Bible had thus far given birth to two concordances, a book on Chinese snuff bottles, three dashel hammocks, and a biography of Jimmy Stewart, of which it seemed exceedingly proud. None of the Agatha Christie's, on the other hand, had done anything but sit on the shelves and look smug. Even with the abstainers, the shelves were full to overflowing, and each time I was compelled to stack a book on the floor, I feared I was merely encouraging further promiscuity. And so, that is how I opened the bookshop. The life insurance settlement provided the capital for me to buy the building whose second floor we'd rented for so long, and to pay the carpenters to put in the shelves and build a nice high counter to sit behind. I'd been in a bit of a rush to get it all finished, but at least I hadn't had to worry about stock. Now all of my charges had shelves to sit on and customers to browse them and occasionally take them home and love them. That was what mattered. For the rest, the bookshop took care of itself. If once or twice in the time since I'd opened my doors I heard the noises of attempted burglary coming from below my apartment, I just sat tight and listened. There would be a thud, a flutter of pages, perhaps a muffled scream or two, and I would go back to my book. Why bother the police with some trivial tale of broken glass and a forced lock when I knew nothing had gone missing but the burglar? No, I didn't care for policemen. They caused too much havoc around a place. I might not have been a particularly handsome woman, and I might not have been a young one, but the cats got along well with my bookshop, and it got along well with them, and it was a far, far better to replace the glass and fix the lock and forget about things that went bump in the night. It was not a glamorous life, no, but it was quiet and congenial to a bookish sort, and I liked it like that.